If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. Welcome to the podcast today, Beck. I would love to start by understanding what journey you went on to decide to become a solo mum by choice. Sure. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, so, oh, I don't really know where to begin. I guess I will start at the very beginning. Sounds good. <laughs> um, I wanted to have a baby ever since I was a teenager. I wanted to be a mum ever since I was I was probably 15 years old. I, I knew that I wanted to have a baby and um yeah it was always part of who I was but um I also knew that I wanted to live my life and have fun and travel and have new experiences and and experience as much as I possibly could before I sort of went down that path yeah. um yeah and I guess I I just um I chose a life of, of adventure I've, I've lived overseas and I've, I've traveled a lot I've climbed mountains and trekked through jungles and sailed across oceans and done all sorts of amazing things and um I worked in travel for a really really long time so it meant I got to fulfill that passion and yeah it was sort of the first thing that I I would give priority to in my in my life um and relationships were never really something that I I worked on or had very much luck with and um something that I would sort of make bad decisions in and I, I just never really sort of like found the right person or or had that path stuck in my head that that's what I wanted to to achieve but yeah. then in the back of my mind I always wanted to have a baby so I knew that as well um so yeah I guess um I got to my late 30s and I, I lived this happy full life of travel and amazing friends and living in interesting cities and eating great food and having these new experiences. And then I guess it was just sort of like time for me to start thinking about how I could make this happen essentially. And yeah. So was there one sort of moment where you're like, oh, I really need to do something about this now that you yeah. can remember? There was actually. Um, interestingly, I was I was speaking with a, a counsellor about something completely unrelated uh, and she said to me, um, like, what do you want, Beck? What do you actually want? And I, and no one had ever really asked me that, in, like, at that time. And I said, oh, I think I want to have a baby. <laughs> and she's like, okay, so 
what you need to do is go and see your GP and then your GP can refer you to a fertility specialist. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Like I hadn't really, it hadn't occurred to me to make that step. Yeah. And so then I went and saw my GP and then I just got a, re- a referral to see um, the fertility specialist, which was literally, is only a 20 minute walk from my house, like a couple of suburbs Andy. away, yeah. nice and close. And yeah, I think that was the, that was the very first step that I took in, um, in, in this process. And I remember someone saying to me, fertility uh, treatment is like a train. You're the driver you can hop off at any time. So once I'd heard that, I didn't feel pressured to sort of either do it or to not do it. I just said, I'm going to start doing this journey and just see where it takes me because I'm in control. And if I don't want to do it, I don't have to do it, but it's, it's, it's my journey. So I can just see where it takes me. Sounds like very good advice. Yeah. And going into that first appointment, were you clear in your mind that you were going to be doing this by yourself with a donor or were you kind of thinking I'm just going to see what my options are yeah no absolutely clear in my mind it's so funny because I'm such an emotional person so (laughs) I started crying as we were walking through the doctor's surgery before I got into the doctor into the my fertility specialist (laughs) and she turned around and she goes usually people wait until they get inside the room before they start crying and I'm like tears falling down my cheeks I'm like what the hell is going on? Like, what is, what's the matter with me? And I got in and she's like, what's, why are you here? And I was like, I think I want to have a baby. <laughs> and I didn't really need to, <laughs> didn't need to be this emotional thing. But for me it was, I guess, because it was just, it was an, it was unknown. And I guess it was in, in retrospect, I look back and that was, that was the pivotal turning point in my journey. And I have a beautiful two-year-old boy now and yeah, maybe something, subconsciously was trying to tell me that that was a a, a really big moment I don't know I guess if you were late 30s you'd spend all this time just thinking yeah I'll have a baby at one point and this is like actually I'm doing this now that's it's it's, it is a massive step yeah definitely and also there wasn't a lot of like resources around for me to sort of understand how it all worked and I think I was going in quite naive and and I just didn't understand it very well. So it's sort of, it was, it was daunting in, in that way because I was going to this whole new process and you hear these stories, you hear it's scary and invasive and I don't necessarily think that's true. I think every, everyone's journey is completely different. Mm. And um, yeah, it was just a real unknown for me to sort of be, yeah, just embarking on this brand new, brand new journey that I just didn't know anything about. And how was your fertility specialist? Did she yeah, she, take you through all of that? She's really lovely. Yeah, she was she was great. And I guess just advice for anyone: just follow your gut. I really trusted her. She kind of she held her cards close to her chest and held some information that she didn't need to share to herself, which I I found really really good because I didn't need to hear what I didn't need to hear um but yeah she was a, an amazing fertility specialist and she was caring and she talked me through how it all worked and she tailored my needs she individually tailored my treatment to my needs she didn't see me as sort of like a statistic and that's actually really interesting because I was quite um I was quite focused on googling and checking stats for like do that no that's exactly it stats for like a live birth and I I worked out that the statistic because I was I was 40 years old when I did my IVF cycle and then 41 when I gave birth 
and the chances of me having a live birth was 16%. And that's according to all of the, you know, every website. So I kind of like basically just like got all the information I could on the internet and then it came out with this percentage. But then I actually upped it to 50% because I was like, hang on a second, I don't fall into the category of people that requires fertility specialist because I'm infertile. I'm doing this because I'm using donor sperm. So there's all this information out there and all these statistics which aren't really accurate for people like me because we're this whole subset of women that are doing fertility treatment because we're using that sperm. So, yeah, I just gave myself a 50% chance. (laughs) Pretty good odds, yeah. Just made it up and it worked. (laughs) So was there anything that she kind of tailored specifically because you were older? Did you start with IUI or did you go straight to IVF? Yeah, it's really interesting. No, I started with IUI. So with uh, in Victoria, you need to do the two IUIs. And if they don't work, then they consider you, I think it's clinically infertile, and then you can go through and be referred for IVF. Um, so we did one we did one IUI. That was actually quite funny because I was working a really, really high pressure job at this stage and I had to nick out for like an hour in in between delivering a marketing campaign for a really large event in Melbourne and went off and I did this IUI and came back again and just (laughs) continued working and everyone's like, they just thought I went to the physio or something like that. I'm like, I cannot believe, like nobody here knows that I just did this. And it's really funny because at this same place I had to – you know how you have to have to do the injections? I was like coming in in the morning and I was picking up the injections on my way to work, hiding them in a fridge in a brown paper bag as though it was my lunch. <laughs> and then going to the toilets to do these injections. I'm like, what if people found all these needles and all these medications? Like they'd think, who is this person? What's going on? So that was like a bit tricky. Um, but yeah, that IUI didn't work, unfortunately. And I was a little bit disappointed, but I didn't expect it to. Like I just... Yeah, I didn't expect it to work at all. And um, after that, my fertility specialist said, you know what, let's just put you straight onto IVF. So she just sort of like wrote it through. So I didn't need to do that second one. And um, yeah, we got to, um, yeah, go straight through to the uh, stim cycle. And how did that go? I'm assuming more brown paper bags dodgily in the fridge. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, it's actually, it's so funny because I'm just, I'm one of those people that just has had this roller coaster sort of like of good luck and bad luck and good luck and bad luck so that particular job that I was in um uh I I left there and I had the summer off and I I turned 40 and I didn't have a job and I was like I'm going to do this I've started on this journey I'm going to do this so I found the money and I did the IVF cycle and this is this was in January of 2020 so this is like just a few months before COVID Mm -hmm. So did the IVF cycle, I landed an amazing job in performing arts. It was going to be my forever job. I'm like, great, all my ducks are lined up. And, yeah, I did the cycle and it was a success and I got 21 eggs wow. fertilised and five little embryos frozen. So pop those straight in the freezer. And, um, yeah, I started this great job and, spoke to HR and I knew that I would be able to get my uh, uh, parental leave if I stayed there for the 12 months, which I intended to do. So I had it all planned out. So I was like, great, I've got these embryos in the freezer. In three months' time, I can pop one in. And that means when I have the baby, it'll be 12 months down the track and I'll get my parental leave entitlements. And then COVID had other plans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was like, um, yeah, I was that person sort of walking through 
walking through the streets. It was towards the end of March when people were like losing their jobs and walking around crying. And I remember it was a Friday afternoon and I wasn't upset that I, I I lost my job. I was just upset because I couldn't continue on this journey and it was really, really tricky for me. So, um, yeah, I was at this sort of like stage where I'd worked so hard to get where I uh, wanted to and everything sort of like was just, yeah, my plans had gone out the window. And second. they're just sitting there going, pop me in. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So, so what happened next? What was the, the catalyst yeah. that then... Yeah, so we I obviously guess, have um, Jamie now. So yeah, I've got Jamie now. So I guess. Oh, so when was it? It was like it was April of 2022. Um, so I'd been unemployed. I guess everyone was just everyone remembers what they were doing at that time. Um, I was doing a little bit of freelancing work. Um, and I just thought this now is a great time. I'm unemployed. I've just turned 40. I'm single, and the world is raging with a virus. It's killing people. Why don't I? put an embryo in what a great idea Beck. <laughs> so it was literally um so in Victoria they closed elective surgery um when everything had shut down and then there was like a moment when they opened it up and as soon as they opened it up the elective surgery it meant IVF could continue and yeah. luckily my cycle lined up perfectly so that the day they opened it meant that I was considered on the first day of my cycle and I could put, do my embryo transfer so um yeah uh, went in and did the embryo transfer. So that was like on the 13th of, of May. And that was just that hilarious in itself. Like just being in this in this room and this sort of like people come in and these science, you know, these scientists carrying this tray with your embryo on it and they have the gloves on and they sort of like hand it to the fertility specialist, like and they grab it off the tray. And they it was just like being in a sci-fi movie. I'm like, this is just amazing. And yeah, um, popped the embryo in and and then I left there and then I went off and did acupuncture and chatted to my fertility specialist and somebody also had said to me, like, on the day you do your embryo transfer, you should laugh. So I went home and I think I oh. put on, like, an Amy Schumer comedy show or Rebel Wilson or something. I can't actually remember. Yeah. And it was funny and I did. I laughed. I laughed and laughed because I was in a really good headspace because after everything that had happened, I was, like, happy to sort of be on the you know following my dream again mm. and um yeah and then I guess as soon as I'd done the embryo transfer I sort of like tried to push it in the back of my mind and then I felt a little bit different you know a few days later and I felt a little bit different and I was like oh you know it could just be the hormones because I was on the progesterone and and then I was like got to day eight and I was like no I have to do a pregnancy test I have to do a pregnancy test so I did one and there was a little faint line I'm like I'm not gonna <laughs> believe this throw it away, throw it away, stop, 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 what are you doing? And then I and then I left it a day and then I did another one and the line was darker. Then I did another one and the line was darker. And then the next day was my blood test. I went and got the blood test and they confirmed that there was a pregnancy. They said that the HCG levels were quite low and I needed to go back a couple of days later to see that they doubled and they were and it was a, a confirmed pregnancy. So, yeah, um, I was really excited about that. I didn't really know what to think or... Yeah, and then I guess just from then on, I just took took each sort of like each stepping stone as it came. I guess in the grand scheme of things, after reading your scary statistics, 40 years old, one IUI, one IVF, five embryos, first transfer pregnant, that's some pretty good hope for anyone listening to this that might be in the same situation because it, yeah. it is very hard to find reliable stats for 
people if they don't have fertility issues, like you say. So that's exactly right. Yeah, that's why I just made up my own. <laughs> but um, yeah, true, so that's good. I know, but I, I think that um, I what I did, I tried to optimize every possible thing that I possibly could control. So. In the year before I did my fertility treatment, I cut out red meat mm-hmm. and I was eating lots of beans, lots of leafy greens, lots of these um, foods that are supposed to increase your fertility. Um, I chose a young donor because I had read that a young donor is more likely to help with conception than an, a donor with older, older sperm. Um I, I I did everything I could. I did supplements, acupuncture. Um, yeah, basically I just, I knew I couldn't change my age, yeah. but I tried to change everything else that I po- possibly could to give myself the best chances. Brilliant. So you took a young donor. How did you find selecting the donor? That yeah, process? oh gosh, it was really funny. The whole process I just thought was just a little bit like online dating. And I actually had a friend with me a couple of times and we sort of went through the profiles and, yeah, I just um, I was quite surprised. It was quite a small uh, pool to choose from when mm-hmm. I when I chose mine. There was about thirteen donors to choose from. Um, about six or seven of them were Caucasian, which is what I wanted to choose basically so that my child looked similar to me, yeah. um, and had similar features because I, I just want him having the best sort of chance in life. And, and less things working against him that might sort of like make him feel more different than he might already perceive that he is. Um, yeah. And there were some that just weren't quite right. And I sort of would go back on and I'd refresh and there'd be nothing there. And then I go back on and refresh and there'd be nothing new there. And then, then one day there was a brand new donor and I was like, Oh, I haven't seen this one yet. And it was like, they, they list the allocations next to the donor. You see like their age, their height, their weight, their eye color, and then how many allocations were left? And there was one left. And this was brand new, brand new stock as well. And I was like, oh my God. And it felt like, you know, when you're like on booking.com, and it's like 15 people have booked this hotel in the last 24 hours, you get these little pop-ups. I was like, oh my God, quick, quick, quick. And then I chose it. Obviously, I read the profile and I chose it. And then as soon as I chose it, it was like you just locked out of this portal and your fate is sealed. And I was like, wow. So yeah. That's pretty exciting. Mine was on like I got an Excel spreadsheet and got things emailed to me. So yes. yours sounds much yes. more exciting. That's funny. Yeah, I've moved on in the what year difference that we had. Yeah. So I guess you ended up being pregnant all through COVID and lockdown. How did you find that being by yourself? Oh, did you have support in it. any way? Or I didn't. Well, my whole family are in WA. Okay. Um, I had a lot of friends here supporting me emotionally and like obviously dropping around food and just being there for walks like when we couldn't go you know within five like more than five kilometers of our house and we could only meet up an hour outside and I live in an apartment block with 50 other apartments so we, there's a real community of us and we were sort of like catching up in the stairwell to have like cups of tea and stuff like that and yeah I, I loved it I actually look back on 2020 with really fond memories a lot of other people don't because I just wasn't missing anything and I was nesting and I was working from home. Oh, and then I should mention, as soon as I'd done the embryo transfer and fell pregnant, I landed a really great job in events and was doing this awesome role working from home um, uh, on on some virtual events as well. So, um, yeah, I, I loved it. I, it meant I wasn't missing anything. Like, yeah. And I, I, I'm quite social. I love going out and, 
you know, having a few drinks at the pub. And I was like, okay, this is good because the pubs are all shut. <laughs> I'm not missing a thing. Yeah. I know. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, I, I had an okay pregnancy. It wasn't an, an amazing pregnancy. Um, I had my fair share of of issues, fatigue, like intense fatigue and weird things happening all over my body, funny pigmentation, funny things happening here and there and yeah, by the end of it, I was giant. And yeah, it's funny because I went in, I went in for my 37 week scan and Bub was measuring at 4.1 kilos. Ouch. They're like, um, no, he was measuring 4.5 kilos. He was measuring 41 weeks. And they're like, yeah, yeah, your, your child has fetal macrosomia, which just means a large baby, essentially. Okay. Fancy and, name um, for it. Scary, fancy yeah, name for it. It sounds scary. Yeah. Anything over four four kilos is that and um and then they sort of started trying to talk me into talk me out of having a vaginal birth and I was like no no no. you don't need to talk me out of anything I'm like can we just book an elective cesarean right here right now please and um yeah so we booked it basically for the following week and um yeah my little bub was born we have little Jamie isn't it little Jamie yeah yeah so he was born in January of 2021 so he just turned two yeah and so we were still in lockdown then weren't we oh I think so so we sort of came out of lockdown yeah January and then everything was okay then everything all went pear-shaped again around June July we're in another four-month lockdown so that was the hard one so could you have anyone with you when you had him yes I had my birth partner um she's incredible and she is also a solo mother by choice who had a baby about four weeks ago so I know and she was absolutely incredible um it was a really amazing birth so it's funny because I woke up I straightened my hair I put my makeup on like I had a shower and it felt like you know sort of when you wake up really early and you set your alarm you're going to the airport it was like I was going to the airport and I'm like because it was dark outside I had a place to go and I'm like I'm not going to the airport I'm like I'm gonna have a baby like (laughs) this is so weird and then my friend her name is Jessa she picked me up and I was very nervous on the way and I was just like what is this like I can't believe we're just you know in a car I wasn't in labor or anything I was just like going to literally have a baby and um yeah we got to the hospital and we were taking selfies in the waiting room and being silly and mucking around and then next minute they sort of called me in and and brought me in and we went into the room and I walked in it was it was like in the movies when the doors were whoosh and they open and there's just all these doctors and nurses just spawning around doing their thing and they sort of all look at you and say hello and then keep going around and I was like wow and I'm like oh they're here for me I'm like that's where I'm going to be lying on this bed in the middle I'm like oh my god I'm the person having a baby this is crazy and um yeah I laid on the bed and they did the little needle thing in the back to sort of like numb me and they put a lot a lot in because I was basically I couldn't move my arms when Jamie ended up coming out and um yeah I lay down and <laughs> one of them said to me do you drink coffee and I was like yeah and they're like okay so when you hear the sound of a coffee machine that's when you're about to meet your baby and I was like that's a really random thing to say anyway like two minutes later I hear this like this weird noise <laughs> I was like is that what they meant and the next minute they just go whoa they just pulled Jamie out and I was like this is crazy and he's not what I expected him to look like like oh my god he's gorgeous I just expected because I was so big I expected I don't know what I was expecting but um he was amazing and then they took him over to the little uh bench on the side and 
got his little fluid out with cesarean birth. A lot of the time they have fluid stuck in their um, in their lungs. And they have to get it out. And they picked him up and then he did a wee on one of the nurses and they brought him over. And, and then we had a cuddle. It was just, it was a really lovely experience. It sounds so relaxed and yeah. organised. And you would have looked very glamorous, unlike uh, I know. Us. <laughs> and so then going home, how did you find the first few days? Obviously with a cesarean birth, you would have been a bit tender. How did you yeah. cope with that alone? Yeah, it was a bit it was a bit tricky. So it's funny because I wanted to stay in the hospital as long as I possibly could. And because it was just like a COVID rush, they were basically like, we've got to discharge you like on the Monday morning. So the Friday morning was when I had Jamie, stayed in Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and Monday morning I came home. And yeah, it was really hard, especially that that day, they call it the crying day, day four or day five, when like all of your hormones just leave your body. And I remember just lying in, I was in the kitchen, standing in the kitchen, sorry, just with my head on a bench, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And Jamie was lying on the couch, just his, you know, tiny newborn. And I remember thinking, like, what have I done? Like, (laughs) what have I done? Just grieving my life before, like thinking I'd made a mistake. Like, obviously it's like, it's an intense feeling. And I just, I wasn't prepared for that feeling. And, um, and on the same day, my breast became engorged really quickly. And I didn't have, I didn't have an electric breast pump. I don't know why my friends didn't say to me, Beck, you really need an electric breast pump. I only had a manual one. And um, yeah, I basically had to put chat to put a note in a, a local Facebook group. And a woman saw my plea and she's like, there's this woman at home by herself with a baby and her breasts are engorged. I'm going to go over there right now with my breast pump. So she left her work and went home and picked up a breast pump and came in here, Ooh. walked in, plugged it in, put it on, put it on both boobs and emptied them and got on my milk out. I got about 250 mil from each one. That's cool. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was so painful and so crazy. And I was like, okay, that's something I won't be doing again. But um, aside from that, everything seemed to, to, to be okay after that. So it was quite difficult recovering from the abdominal surgery, obviously, because it is major surgery. Massive. Anyone, yeah. yeah, anyone listening, I really recommend getting one of those little rubbish picker uppers. You know those little things that like oh, the grabbers. Little yeah. grabbers. I know. That's I needed a, a grabber, so I ended up. I had a pair of tongs. I had a long pair of tongs. So I was like picking things up with the tongs, and I dropped the tongs on the floor one day, and I'm like, oh my god, I can't even get the grabber. Like <laughs> the grabber, I need a grabber to get the grabber. <laughs> oh, but um, no, I had I had friends drop around and drop off groceries, and you know people come and put their rubbish out and. Jessa, my birth partner, came around and just decided she would just rearrange my cupboards, which was, which was really great. I was like, this is actually really helpful. Yeah. And, yeah, no, it was good. It was really good. So once you got over the crying, was it what you thought it was going to be? No, because I had no idea that sleep and feeding was so difficult. I didn't realise it was something you needed to work at. <laughs> and yeah, so that he, he fed quite well in the beginning. Um, but just the whole sleep thing for me, and he's still not an amazing sleeper. Um, I just didn't understand that babies had these sleep cycles and these different, you know, wake periods of REM and, you know, uh, light sleep and heavy sleep. And they go through these awake cycles as well. And I just, it was just, I found myself kind of Googling a lot, Googling too much. And I wish if I had the time back, I just would have just relaxed a little bit and just gone with the flow and read his cues instead of like Googling how many hours a day should a six-week-old be sleeping, blah, blah, blah. Because 
there's so much conflicting information. And I ended up just taking the information I wanted to believe. I'm like, well, this is pointless because I'm smart enough to realize that I'm just choosing what to believe here, but it's not really what's real. Um, and then I got to the point, I think it was around seven or eight month mark where I just sort of like just gave into it to knowing that he's not, he wasn't ever going to be an amazing sleeper because what he did was just have little really small naps and he would never sleep. I had a, I had friends that um, actually had a baby at the same time and she was an amazing sleeper and she did these like two and three hour blocks. And I'm like, why won't my child sleep like that? But um, yeah, they're also different. They are. Yeah, and nothing can prepare you for what they're going to be like. They will exactly. decide that for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And did you have a good supportive mother's group? Find yeah. a, a nice village that way? Absolutely, yeah. We had like 13, I think 13 people in our mother's group. Wow. And, um, yeah, so we met at the local library in Fitzroy North. And um, it was funny because the very first session, four of their partners were there. So we had four men in the room. And the guys were sort of sitting there just going like, oh, I don't know where to look because there were just boobs everywhere. It was like something <laughs> out of like Handmaid's Tale with like all these women and babies and everyone's like, what is going on? This is just weird. I was not prepared for this. But, um, yeah, no, we 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 all, all kind of got along really well. We all catch up together. We went out for a lovely, lovely lunch the other day. Nice. We all still live around here. A few people moved away. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely great having that support back then. You know, we all sort of like walked together and, put the bubs in the carrier when they when they were old enough to be in the front facing carriers and went for walks around the garden and um yeah it was it was good to have that support because a lot of us were so isolated from family and friends was there any other solo mums by choice in the group or have you mm-hmm. met any since not in my group there was one in the group directly after me and ah. keep in contact um ah. so yeah so my maternal health care nurse nurse actually mentioned her to me and we sort of actually adopted her into our mother's group after that when it became like an unofficial whatsapp group which was just yep. sort of like you know chatting and meetups and stuff like that so yeah it was really great to have that um introduction to her nice and did you manage to get a year off or how did you go with maternity leave and then going yeah. back to work so actually so i was on contract through through my pregnancy um and then so i had jamie and then i got to the i got to the eight eight month mark and it was it was a really really tough year because um he actually ended up he ended up in hospital at about the six month mark because he had yeah he had a tongue tie and he couldn't feed and I knew that he had a tongue tie from birth and I chose not to snip it and we got to the point where he just couldn't he couldn't open his little mouth to get the milk out and I didn't know that that this was the issue but he was quite unwell and he was actually in he went into starvation ketosis I could smell a strange smell on his breath. So I took him to emergency. They admitted him straight away. And um, they said, oh, you know, he just needs to feed more. And I said, yeah, well, he's been having trouble feeding for an extended period of time. Like it had been a few weeks crying and wincing and pulling away. And, and um, yeah, their parting advice was, you know, you just need to encourage a baby to feed. And they, they fed him with up, up some formula, put him on fluids. He was fine. He was just, he just wasn't getting enough milk. And we left the hospital and I was a little bit disappointed because I was like, that's not really a solution. And mm. I have friends that uh, worked with a really great lactation consultant and I called her straight away. She dropped everything and came over. She looked, took one look at my breasts, one look at my nipples, one look at his mouth and said, his tongue tie is so restrictive. He can't move his little jaw. He can't latch. And she said, I really recommend that you get this lasered. And I'm so lucky because this was around June 
And then and there, she said, the first thing you need to do is book him in for physio and then you need to book the orthodontist that does the treatment. We called up, we got in straight away. Within about two weeks, we had his tongue tie lasered. We had the top one and the bottom one. He had a tongue tie and a lip tie. Oh, wow. Um, and got him in for physio and then we went into lockdown again and everything had shut. So elective physio orthodontics was closed. So had we not gotten in that quickly, and he wouldn't take formula and he wouldn't feed from a bottle. He was exclusively breastfed. Had we not had that done, I don't know what would have happened. And I even said to my doctor, I said, like, what happens to babies that can't get this surgery? And she said to me, like, well, I said, like, what if, you know, they're in countries, developing countries? And she said, well, a lot of babies diabetic. And I was like, I can't believe this. Like, this is, yeah, we could have been in, in this situation where he, mm. he wasn't okay because he couldn't be fed. So that was really tricky. So, um. It took us about a month of recovery. So when you have a tongue tie and a lip tie uh, surgery, and it's basically it's a water laser, the water laser that's so sharp and so quick that it just loosens the ties. Yeah. Um, it has to, you have to stretch it out. So for it was every four hours or six hours for about a month, I had to wake him up and stretch his wounds out so it didn't grow back. And it was awful. <laughs> he would scream and I would cry. And, it was really, really tricky. And everyone's like, don't worry, he won't remember. And I'm like, this is so shit to be going through. So we sort of came out of that at the seven, eight, seven, eight month mark. And then just to your question, that's when I went back to work and that's when I put him into childcare. And it was the best thing <laughs> because I had had the hardest, hardest, hardest journey. And um, I really wish that I had put him in childcare earlier. There's all these mums now that I see posting in groups and, saying like oh you know I don't know if I should put my child in childcare I don't know why I didn't put him in for one day a week from five or six months I would have loved yeah. that break because I never got it I wish if I had that time I could put him back in I would have put him in um but yeah so I um actually got a call from a recruiter that said there's a really great four-month contract um coming up would you like to do this it's all working from home and I said yeah that sounds amazing so yeah just went back part-time popped him in childcare part-time Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was really lovely. That was a real turning point for me because it was like I was going back to work and I felt empowered to be something other than, you know, just a mother on parental leave and going back to being a creative person and doing things that I love and interacting with people and meeting new people. And um, it was really nice because I would drop Jamie off and I'd, I was expressing, I was expressing like mad and dropping yeah. off express milk and then I would, because his childcare is just around the corner, I would drop off and give him a feed at lunch and, I, I didn't I didn't miss him because I could still see him, but I just I was just so happy to have this break from him. And yeah. it was just it was really, really lovely. And then um yeah, that contract ended and then at the end of 2021, we were lucky enough to actually get an exemption to go back into WA. So after the seventh application wow. that I put in, WA had their borders closed that whole time. Um, yeah, that on my seventh application, it was actually accepted. And I was on holiday in Byron Bay with a friend and Jamie. It was just before Christmas and I had a police officer from the um, WA police force call me and just say, hey, we're letting you into into Perth, but you have to leave now and you can't leave from New South Wales because this is when Omicron was kicking off. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he's like, you have to cross the border and go to Brisbane. So we were just like, oh, my God. And I was like telling my friends and they're like, we can't believe you got to WA. Like, how did you do that? But I had applied and applied and applied and I kept giving all of this information. Like, as I've just told you, like, I'd had a really hard year. And, um, yeah, we went back to WA, which was lovely. 
So finally your family got to meet him or had they managed to meet yeah, him before? Probably yeah, not. So no. they'd, they'd met him once. So in that little gap sort of like of early 2021, mum came over here and I had the chance to go to Perth mm-hmm. um, before that second long lockdown. But, yeah, this was the first time I could sort of like stay there for an extended period and go and visit friends and just enjoy it. So, yeah, that was really lovely. And were you working while you were over there as well or did you just have no, a nice mum break? No, just, just had the, had some time off and then I went back to work Um yeah, just March, March of last year on a different contract. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that ended and now I'm on another contract. So it's crazy. I've been do- doing contract work ever since, not what I expected. Like, you know, I had all these grand plans to be working full time, getting parental leave, and it just didn't work out like that. So, yeah, but I've got my baby, so that's okay. And is there any advice you'd give anyone who's maybe on maternity leave and just about to go back to work on anything that you found that was really helpful for that transition? Oh, yeah. The best thing for me was going back to work part-time and having, Mm -hmm. having that day. So I always took Wednesdays off and it meant that you got to work on a Monday and you only had two days of work. And then Tuesday night, you're all excited because you get to spend the day with your child the next day. And like that whole, the whole first couple of years, I guess, of Jane's life, like the last two years, we've just had so much fun together. Like we've gone to museums and activations and the zoo and pop-up, pop-up sort of events that are on, done little train trips like Puffing Billy and Mm. all sorts of amazing things. It's just, it was just so valuable having that time. And like during the week, just when things aren't so busy and we stop off and have baby chinos and, you know, it's just, so valuable. And now I'm doing four and a half days and Jamie's in childcare five days and now it's me time. So that half a day, so it's Fridays, I do a half day, I get five, five hours of me time. And like when I, when I talk to my friends that are partnered or friends that don't have kids, they don't get how, how important this is. It's like winning the time lotto. It literally is to have five hours uninterrupted where I can just chill out and just like literally watch a show on Netflix and then just take the garbage out and then go do the shopping or go do yoga or go for a walk or whatever. It's amazing. So, yeah, I think that my advice, my advice is if you can, just don't go back full time. Don't just, yeah, you know, take that time to be with your child or to have that time for yourself because, um, yeah, it's tricky and it's just good to have, you know, give yourself a little bit of, a little bit of a special time. Absolutely. Yeah. And have you thought anything about the donor or about making contact with him or about donor siblings? Yeah, no. I, I mean, the donor's in my thoughts often, but I have not never thought about making contact. Mm-hmm. It's not something that is important to me. Like I'm incredibly grateful and I know enough information about him from his profile and he sounds like a very, very lovely human being. Um, so I wouldn't really be interested in that. And that's not to say that I wouldn't be in the future or that I wouldn't want Jamie to be either. Um, but donor siblings, I'm absolutely interested in connecting with donor siblings because um, Jamie won't have any cousins. It's actually quite sad. And I didn't think about any of this stuff before I had a baby. Um, I have an older sister who doesn't have any children. Um, and I also don't have a relationship with my father. So he, he has a quite a small family. It's um, his mum and there's my mum. And my mum has brothers and sisters and I have cousins, but he will have no no siblings or no direct cousins, which is a little bit sad. So, yeah, I would love to meet his donor siblings. And it's interesting because I actually contacted the clinic after after Jamie was born and yeah. I asked them if he had donor siblings and he had six at that stage. 
oh, all, wow. all in the area and all born around the same time as well. So I'm like, this is crazy. So yeah, he might have more because they're allowed to donate, I think, to 10 families in Victoria. Yeah. So yeah, I'd definitely be open to meeting his donor siblings. They do the paperwork with Vata, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's really tricky to sort of navigate. And I think that's why I haven't done it yet because I've had so much going on. But, um, yeah, it's on my list. <laughs> and so there's still four in the freezer. Are you definite that he won't have siblings or is oh, it still something you're considering? So tricky. Yeah, I mean, I keep paying for storage and mm-hmm. part of me part of me knows I won't use them because I just don't feel young enough <laughs> anymore okay. I don't think I'm I'm 43 now and yeah I just I, I think one is enough like it would just completely change my life like when he's old enough I want to take him to Japan and then I want to take him trekking in Nepal and I want to go to Africa and go on safari and see the animals and do all these amazing adventures with him take him to Scotland and go see a castle and go on an old train and and I can't really do that if I have two small children like a, I probably can't afford it, and B, I just I don't have the the support that I would need to do that. So I think I think one is enough for now. So ultimately, I think that those embryos will end up getting donated to science. Mm-hmm. I would never destroy them. Um, yeah. So that's what I'll do there. I think that's a big one, isn't it? Until yeah. you know that decision, you just keep paying. Exactly. Yeah, you keep paying. Yeah. Once know. it's clear. <laughs> yeah. And so if you could look back now, is there anything you think you'd do differently or anything you'd tell younger Beck? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I think I probably I probably would have done it sooner. And a lot of people say this. And I've, I've heard it from so many people and I didn't understand why at the time. Um, but I guess I understand now. Like I just, I just wish I were a little bit younger and... Uh, it's like a I don't know really no I don't really know I, I think it's more just to get the best the best part of me like I worry that I'm getting a little bit too old or you know and then you look forward to the future and you look to when we're like when he's 15 like will I be able to kick a footy with him that sort of thing like it's quite important for me to still be an active person and and show him how to live a healthy active life so I think for that reason, and he always will because I'm his mother and it's important for me to be active also. Um, so, yeah. Have you seen J-Lo? She just turned 50. She looks incredible. <laughs> she looks so good. Yeah. So I think, yeah, maybe maybe could have done it just a couple of years earlier. That's all, just a couple. Um, and then I guess, yeah, the next bit of advice is just like childcare is amazing. They mm-hmm. love it. Everyone feels guilty about putting their child in there, but it is the best thing for them and they're not going to remember it. They're going to be so safe. They're fine. You can drop them off. And like, even if they are a little bit sad, your mental health is so important. If you're struggling and you don't have anyone, that's what it's for. That's literally Mm. what childcare is for. And then we're so lucky to be living in a country where it gets subsidized. So it doesn't really cost us a great deal. Um, So yeah, that probably would be my next piece of advice. And then of course, the third thing would be like, just take some time for yourself and work part-time if you can. Yeah. And if anyone's on the fence about whether this is the right path for them, is there any advice you'd give them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, like it's your own journey. You're the train driver. You you could jump off like when you're on the operating table to get your eggs retrieved. Like you, no one's forcing you to do anything. Mm. So 
you can just continue and just, you know, navigate it as you go. And if you ever feel like it's the wrong thing for you, you just sort of step back and you say, okay, I'm going to stop this. So it was interesting for me because I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't understand why I knew that. So I had a lot of conversations with girls my age who were also on the fence. And then when they decided not to, I said to them, I asked the question, I said, why did you decide not to? And all of their reasons were completely different from my reasons. And I was like, that's really interesting. And they were really, really valid reasons, really Mm -hmm. valid. And mine weren't because I was sort of on the fence as well. And I was like, oh, so I think by way of deduction that I do want this. (laughs) So it was a roundabout way of me coming to realise I did want to do it by myself. Um, So, yeah, it's just good to have those conversations. And obviously um, people will be very quick to give you advice and you'll get lots of different advice and you sort of just be patient with people that supply it as as they say in the in the sunscreen song, you know, that um the you know the one from the nineties, Quinton Tava. Yeah. Um they say something like be patient with those who supply the advice, but be careful with what you use or something along those lines. I always remember Good that. memory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well that is brilliant. Is there anything else that you just want to say to anyone listening before oh, we part? Gosh, just hi to all the mums out there. You're doing a great job, really. Like I don't think people realise how how capable people are when it comes to the crunch and how much we can actually accomplish by ourselves. Like it is a two-person job. It really is. Like you need two minds and four arms for the majority mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and, yeah, just kudos to everyone that has the courage and 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 the grit and determination to do it on their own. A lot of very inspiring women out there, you being one of them. So thank you so much for sharing your story today. I can't wait for other people to hear it. Thanks so much, Alicia. I'm Alicia, and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.